Welcome back to this season of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, where we bring you the audio files from the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco, or DOCSF, Experience 2022. I'm Dr. Stefano Bini, your host for this podcast and the founder and chair of DOCSF. In this podcast, we will hear from Fabrizio Billy, Director of Orthopedic Research at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a part of our team at DOCSF. Fabrizio is heading up DOCSF Science, our journal club style segment, where we review the top three translational research papers from over 300 that Fabrizio and his team reviewed. In this section, Fabrizio tackled AI and robotics and was joined by Peter Schilling, Thomas Peterson, Stefan Kreutzer, and Jennifer McKenney. Let's join Fabrizio and his team on the DOCSF stage in San Francisco in April of 2022. What I just saw and experienced in the room next door is exactly why we're here in person, connecting, meeting, shaking hands, exchanging cards. I have at least four more in my pocket than I have this morning. So moving on to the next session, moving to DOCSF Science, this new segment. I'm very, uh, very pleased to introduce to you Dr. Fabrizio Billy. He's a PhD scientist interested in biomechanics uh, and motion at the UCLA. And he's joined our team and has been with us for several years now. So without further ado, Fabrizio, turn it over to you to kick off science, our first ever. Hello, everybody. Here we are, science. The segment uh, you've been waiting for, so I'm sure. So um, we'll do, we'll bring you the latest, literally the latest papers that have been published in the last year, hopefully to show you what's going on in science, but also to uh, get a glimpse of what's coming next. We're doing uh, things a little differently from a normal uh, scientific symposium. In fact, we won't have the authors of the papers that we'll be discussing here, but a formidable group of panelists. So here, how we are going to proceed. We have four segments, two for today and two for tomorrow. The first two are AI and robotics and sensor and XR. We review 368 papers. It was uh, Pretty tough, but we made it with the help of 10 senior, 10 faculties and, uh, and some residents, which I thank very much. They were very helpful. They uh, really deserve a round of applause. Um, we selected down from these 368 papers, only 12, so three papers per segments. And we'll be discussing these papers. Uh, our panelists will highlight what what's going on and uh, why they like it or they don't like it. And finally, we will have some award. The only one of these three papers per segment will select it for an award. So uh, this is how the segments will uh, be divided. And we have a 30 minute segments. We discuss three papers and uh, a brief introduction, a focus discussion from the panelists on, uh, on the papers. And then the last part will We'll take from those papers and try to discuss what's going to be the next 15 years. There's also a little bit of participation from your side. Actually, you're going to be a fundamental part of this because your vote will select who's going to be the winner, who we are going to award. So you will see on Slido uh, 2037, you will have to respond to, you will have, you know, you will ask to respond to these three questions. How do you think this paper will impact your work? 
Knowing what's possible, does this research change how you prepare for the future? And then which of these paper, papers rocked your world? So you can do these as the papers are presented or in the end, as you please, but please remember to do it. So today, um, the other moderators with me should have been Valentina Pedoya uh, from UCSF. She couldn't be here because someone in her family just got COVID, so she thought it was safer not to come. And here are the first two panelists for the first part on artificial intelligence. Dr. Peter Schilling, please join us. Peter is from Dartmouth and Hitchcock. Here he is. And Thomas Peterson from UCSF. All right. Uh, Peter, you want to say a few words about yourself? Uh, yeah, just uh, very happy to be here, to be the uh, clinician uh, with the real scientists. So I know just enough to be dangerous when it comes to machine learning. So uh, interrupt me if I say something foolish. Uh, but uh, yeah. You want to say something about you? Yeah, sure. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Tom Peterson. I'm the uh, director of UCSF Reach for chronic low back pain at UCSF and also the director of the Laboratory for Digital and Computational Health Sciences in the orthopedic surgery department. Uh, I do uh, machine learning and deep learning, and I also work uh, in close collaboration with a lot of clinical collaborators. Sounds better. Let's get to it. So our first paper is Predicting Spinal Surgery Candidacy from Imaging Data Using Machine Learning. So the objective of this paper was the optimization of the referral process. And so the authors developed an automated model that predicts whether a patient's spinal stenosis warrants a surgical evaluation by a specialist. You guys want to start? Yeah, I can, uh, I can add the uh, clinical color. I can sort of imagine this group of folks getting together and coming up with this paper. Uh, surgeons like to operate. And so really it is about uh, referral of patients to clinics. And of course, uh, having a clinic full of operative candidates is, is very nice for someone who likes to work with their hands. But of course, there's other components to this as well. If you've got a clinic where you've got uh, non-operative candidates there, well, you're taking a spot for someone who uh, could benefit from an operation. So they're essentially utilizing MRI only to try to assist in this referral process. And uh, I'll let Tom talk about the specifics of the machine learning that's applied in order to do this. But in, in short, for a clinician, it is allowing us to locate the levels of the spine to make some measurements there regarding stenosis and then using those measurements to uh, get some idea of whether or not this patient might be a candidate for a decompression, which would be a laminectomy or possibly a discectomy. They eliminate actually fusion. But I'll let Tom talk about the, uh, the clever approach. Yeah, so I really appreciated this paper. It's very clever. Uh, so what they did is they trained a, a deep learning model off of 100 patients from a previous study, and they predicted uh, whether or not these patients from this new study of 140 patients were going to end up needing surgery or, or not. Their final area under the rock curve was 0.88, which is a great performance. Anything above 0.75 is pretty good. 0.88 is quite good. I think this would, this paper, the real innovation here is that they used uh, deep learning to predict this. I thought that the, the performance is really good. Unfortunately, it wasn't possible to uh, sit there and ask a clinician, do you think these people are going to get a spinal surgery in the future, which would probably be the ground truth of how well does it do versus a clinician, or possibly uh, how well would a clinician plus an AI team 
would do compared to an AI model. But yeah, I think that this was a really great paper. Perfect. And uh, what do you think, you know, what were the difference between what's the current practice, uh, you know, and that this paper highlights? Yeah, so I'm a joint replacement surgeon. I got to say, uh, reading a lumbar MRI, uh, not, not like my favorite thing in the world. You can imagine a referring physician who is a uh, primary care physician. And uh, even with an MRI that looks, well, I don't think it's a problem, but I don't really know for sure. You're going to want to refer them to the spine surgeon to weigh in on that. So if you've got some additional number to give you a little bit more confidence about what you're doing, I could see real value in that. Uh, just a little more security that you're doing the right thing. And what do you think uh, would be the evolution for you know, this research? Where do you see this going? Yeah, I see uh, machine and deep learning models like this expanding into the into the future, possibly uh, 10 years from now. Uh, this will be a, a lot more common, not necessarily machines working by themselves, but uh, possibly with doctors who have uh, actual expertise here uh, that can maybe uh, guide the system in certain ways. And like I said, this was trained off of only 100 patients. You can imagine in five or 10 years, we might have thousands, tens of thousands as electronic health records. Uh, include this data more frequently and it becomes more accessible to researchers. I would say that that's also one of the things that I, I look at with this though as well is there's, there's a lot of, I mean, this is a very clever and well done paper. I really like it. There's a lot of papers that have predictive models and usually in the conclusion, and they're, they're not wrong, um, that, oh, you know, we can use this model in clinical practice, yada, 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 case closed. This isn't prospective data. It's not actually in the workflow. Uh, I think the way they define the cohort, they're pretty tidy about it. They did a little massaging to, I think, probably make it look a little bit better than maybe what it would look like if you did it prospectively. And I think it's sort of a call to like, how do you, how do you get these things actually into clinicians' hands and then evaluate them? I and mean, that is a huge step. So a lot to be said there, long conference. So what will be the difficulties of implementing these models into the clinical practice? You know, we heard our first speaker, Nicola, that was pointing out you know, some difficulties in putting these into clinical. What, what do you think, guys, the issues are the issues? Yeah, uh, so tools like this ultimately need to be tested with a prospective randomized clinical trial. Because, you know, as you mentioned, this is a, a sort of a retrospective data set. And also trust in general in AI machine learning models needs to be improved. I'm sure I don't need to tell the people in, in this room about how uh, sometimes you uh, clinicians don't necessarily trust these models or know what they're doing a lot of times. You know, it's, it's the black box problem is still very real. And in the future, maybe we'll have better ideas of how to tease out how the black box is working so it doesn't act in ways we don't like or understand. Yeah, I think uh, you just have to be careful when you release it into the wild, uh, that you should release it and study it and do it in a really controlled way. It's an experiment. You don't know what's gonna happen. You don't know how people will react to it. There could be edge cases, corner cases where you're like, Actually, this is where it really breaks down, and we didn't know that, and someone made a bad mistake because they interpreted the number wrong, or you know, it was just one of these situations where it made a bad prediction. So that, that would be my thought, is a very controlled fashion. All right, ready to move to the next one. So the next one, feasibility of machine learning and logistic regression algorithms to predict outcome in orthopedic trauma surgery. So the objective uh, this study was to compare logistic regression and uh, machine learning methodologies using datasets published studies of musculoskeletal trauma to address the following study questions. The first one, do machine learning models produce better probability estimates than logistic regression models? And second, are machine learning models influenced by different variables than logistic regression models? 
I'm really looking forward to what Tom has to say about this. My, my evaluation of it, I guess I'll just say a couple of things. I mean, you haven't read the paper. Well, maybe folks have read the paper. It's sort of like word salad for folks who maybe don't have a background in it. So it's pretty intimidating at first. There's maybe one part I like about it. And then a lot of parts that kind of like, I'm like, what are we doing? Uh, why did we do this? Let me, let me sort of sum it up though clinically that there's all sorts of outcomes in medicine and in trauma surgery, obviously, where you care about a binary outcome mortality. Did you die? Did you not? Complication. Was there an infection? Was there not an infection? And I don't know. I mean, I have umpteen papers that use logistic regression. I was pretty proud of them at the time. But um, now, I don't know. Maybe that's just not as cool anymore. And I, as a correction of the title, I don't know why they say logistic regression is not machine learning. In my book, it's machine learning. I mean, it's the final layer in a uh, you know deep neural network. So, you know, we're pretty close to it. So what they're trying to say is, look, there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat. And, you know, people, you know, there's, there's all these different ways. And, you know, we're looking at one part of it, which is if you do it these different ways, do you get a more accurate result? Um, and that's kind of the thrust of what they're talking about. But um, I'll hand it over to Tom because I bet he's itching to say some things. There's some real problems with the way they approach it that really bug me. They don't talk about trade-offs. Yeah. Uh, so I will agree that logistic regression is a machine learning method, but Sometimes people who are, say, in uh, statistics fields think it's more of a, a, a traditional method or a commonly used method. I think that the reason that people like it a lot more than what people tend to refer to as machine learning is because it's very simple, right? So you, you, you do a regression and you look at your beta coefficients and you have a really good idea of what each of those variables are doing and how they're contributing to the model. Machine learning, uh, sometimes not so much. And if you get into neural networks, Probably not. And that's really what they're looking at here is, can we use a really simple logistic uh, regression model to get about the same results as some of these more complex models that we don't always know what they're doing inside? Uh, and that's what you're looking at here in the, the figure on the right is that uh, each of these models as compared to uh, the logistic regression have about the same performance as uh, logistic regression. So anything that's on the, the zero line there is, is the same. Right? You can see that uh, uh, the decision tree at some points may have done a little bit better, but that's not statistically better. Uh, so all these methods that they tried, uh, and they they had um, one prospectively collected trial and uh, uh, four uh, retros uh, eight retrospectively collected trials, and they were looking at different things. Some of them were looking at uh, adverse events. Some of them were looking at specific diagnoses. And uh, for all of them, uh, logistic regression performed about the same, right? So for this instance, you would probably prefer a logistic regression example. And that's not to say though that uh, if you used more types of data you might not get better performance with machine learning. For example, uh, in the previous paper, we just saw they uh, did a UNET on a bunch of uh, MRIs. And if you have an AI system combing over MRI data, you might actually get better performance than anything you would get from logistic regression. But you know, uh, this is actually a really good point to make here is that simple models sometimes are best, especially if you're not doing really complex things like needing deep learning on uh, medical imaging. I, uh, I totally agree. As a model becomes more complex, it becomes less interpretable. And so, as you were saying, logistic regression is, it feels a little better, like you can interpret it a little bit easier. I just think there's different tools for different instances. And then, uh, and there's these, these trade-offs, which is interpretability and complexity, trade-off as you use more complex model, greater risk of overfitting. It really depends on the circumstances. And uh, I know that I see a lot of papers review them where there are questions that have been asked before and addressed with logistic regression, and then they essentially do the same thing, sometimes use the same data set, and then do something that fits with machine learning. And I'm like, well, 
it's not, I don't know, it's not that much of a contribution. Now, if you're analyzing, as you said, medical images, different story. All right. So I, I think we have a, a clear picture of, uh, you know, what this paper was about and uh, where it's going. And, and I think, you know, you, you need to be careful which kind of model you're using, depending on the situation, obviously. So the next paper is a little different, if you want, uh, is the use of synthetic IMU signals in the training of deep learning models significantly improves the accuracy of joint kinematic predictions. So the objective of this paper was to develop a methodology to generate synthetic kinematic and, um, and associated predicted IMU signals. Uh, the train a neural network uh, uses synthetic data to predict three degree of freedom joint rotations of the hip and the knee during gait. So let's let's get to Here's the way I understand. This is really not my wheelhouse. And I know Stefano loves this stuff, sitting next to a real expert here. The way people walk matters. People walk a lot of different ways. And if you have a condition like arthritis or, you know, a tendon tear or some other movement disorder, you're going to walk different. And that's really valuable information. And the way that traditionally you'd get that is you bring someone over to a human performance lab, gate lab, got all these things that I don't understand and then watch them walk and yada, yada, yada. It's expensive. It's kind of clunky. It's great for research, but it's not great for clinical work. So uh, what folks are doing, Stefano, this guy over here, can you use sensors? And I won't, I won't steal the thunder on sensors, but getting the data from the sensors to then map that to something meaningful about gait, that's all great. It's hard to get the data. And it's a common problem in all of machine learning is like, you need a ton of data. So what do you do? And I'll hand it over to Tom and I want you to explain how, how this isn't cheating. <laughs> well, well uh, so this is also a really great paper, which is why we selected it. It's not cheating to create synthetic data sets. Actually, I'm a big fan of synthetic data sets and this paper it really exemplifies why everyone should be. I have been guilty of having a very small data size before. This study only had 30 individuals from which they had several thousand strides that they were studying. Uh, in the end, what they, what they did uh, is they had three individuals that they used as a testing set, which is also very small, right? But they have many, many strides that you can understand in those three individuals. Uh, so that being said, uh, that this, this data set itself suffers from uh, lack of data. This is very common. And like I said, I've, I've, I've done similar things in the past too in my research. And what's really nice this paper is that they used machine and deep learning models to uh, predict uh, joint and hip kinematics. And what they showed is that if you use just the real data or just synthetic data, uh, meaning they sort of warped it in, in certain ways to, to make it look a little bit different than the original data set, or if you use real data and synthetic data together, actually the best performing machine learning model is using real data and fake data together. This is sort of a, the concept behind bootstrapping, right? So if you don't have enough data, you make up a bunch of data that looks like your data. And this in the field of computer science and machine learning is known to increase your performance. And this is what this is, right? It's just making up a bunch of data that helps you increase performance. But what's really nice about synthetic data is that you don't have to give up your data. And your synthetic data, once you make it, can be non-PHI data because it's all synthetic and, and fake, right? So institutions that previously couldn't collaborate together can now join their synthetic data sets together and make large and larger data sets, right? So, and that's why I like this paper is because it's showing that if you have synthetic data, even from your own data set, it can increase your performance. So imagine now having data from other collaborators who don't necessarily want to share their data, but you can take their synthetic data and increase your machine learning model performance. This is going to get 
really big in the future. This is the whole concept behind, uh, you know, electronic health records not being able to be shared between institutions and you can make synthetic data sets. Uh, and this is sort of a way that they've done it by making a way to warp and represent the data in different ways to make synthetic data sets, which has been successful in this paper. Not cheating. Not, Not cheating. cheating. Well, uh, you know, synthetic data is also very used in the pharma industry to create uh, what they are now doing with, in silico trials. So they are uh, scanning for the best drugs before investing a lot of money into real clinical data. So did you guys remember to vote and, uh, and express your comments before we move to uh, a discussion, a more general discussion? Actually, I'll, I'll add one thing, if you don't mind, because no, it segues, uh, I, I think it dovetails with what Tom was saying, is that I think so many of these problems, it, it does come down to a team science approach. There's just not going to be enough data if, unless you come up with clever ways uh, to work together. Federated learning being another approach to that, where you don't have to mix the data. Very complicated, very difficult. Can't pretend to understand it, but it seems like a reasonable thing. Talk to Tom about it. <laughs> okay, so did you guys vote? Uh, can we see the Slido results or on the screen just for a moment? Okay, so here you go. Well, we have a winner. <laughs> Synthetic IMU signals, that's our winner, looks like. All right, so you can change these data until... Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you very much. Okay, so we have seen, uh, you know, a prediction and optimization process, definition of the most appropriate models, and uh, the role of synthetic data. So if you don't mind, guys, you know, uh, take us on what, you think is going to happen in the next 15 years? Ooh, that's a, that's a really tough question. Uh, I'll just answer with a, a little uh, sort of spin on that, which is anyone know what Dornbusch's law is? It actually doesn't pertain to tech. It, it was actually, I think it was a German economist and he was commenting on a policy change. And he said, it will take longer than you think for the policy change to take effect. But then when it happens, it will happen faster than you can possibly imagine. And I feel like with this sort of thing, that's kind of how it is. I feel like there's been a lot of predictions. Oh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. The radiologist losing their job. I don't know. I, I haven't seen that yet. Um, but uh, there will be a tipping point is, is my guess. So hard to predict. Yeah, 15 years is a pretty far time away. Okay. Um, uh, I think that humans in general are pretty bad at predicting the future. Uh, but the good news <laughs> is that machines are pretty good at it in some cases but not all the time. And that's why I, I don't necessarily agree with this uh, people on their phones and the computers actually learning. You know, we as humans, we learn too, and we can learn how to utilize these tools to you know, augment doctors and clinicians with AI tools that they want to use and understand how to use and understand what it's doing. You know, in the future, I, I do think that these uh, tools are gonna be more commonplace, but they definitely won't replace your jobs. They're gonna make it easier. They're gonna make it more accurate. You know, a human in the loop is always going to need to be there. For example, uh, AlphaGo was just beat by a team of the AI AlphaGo and also uh, an, a Go expert. You know, so it, it's been shown time and time again that uh, you need a human in the loop to actually beat the machines when they're doing things wrong because they're doing, you know, they're machines. They don't always understand. I don't think we're going to get over that hurdle, especially in the next 15 years. But again, humans are pretty bad at predicting. Right. So, um there's always been uh, some sort of disconnect between the technical side and 
the clinical side. And some of that is also due to a different language that, you know, sometimes is used. How do you see these evolving into, you know, because right now, obviously, the AI expert and the clinician are working more and more together, uh, neck to neck. And uh, so that their understanding of the different languages is going to become better and better. So how do you see these evolving? What Roblox you see in there? Yeah, I, I do think it is very easy to see this as, as an outsider, as as kind of magic pixie dust, and, and and I think to some degree where you know folks are enthusiasts and you know companies that are keen on it are you know a little bit guilty of this, and I do think that that is a bit of a disservice. At the end of the day, it's math, and one doesn't have to understand all of the details of the math to get some of the you know conceptual big picture things that are that are really important to pushing the ball forward. I do think there needs to be an emphasis on material that is written for clinicians that adds some clarity about these concepts in a big picture sense. There's some, but I think uh, more of that would be very helpful. Tom, what do you think? Will AI translate into clinicians' <laughs> language? I don't think it necessarily has to. Uh, I think that uh, in the future, if you guys start using AI tools, it's going to be because you want to. You know, it's it's you guys are going to be speaking the language that you speak, and then the AI is going to have to adapt to that or at least be useful to you in certain ways that's going to make you want to use it. You know, and maybe one day in the future, you know, that's what we're here to figure out. What exactly do you need? Do you need something that's going to give you better predictions of uh, adverse events or length of stay in a hospital or revision surgeries? Do you need something else? You know, uh, and really imagine in your head what you would use these tools for to make better prognostications of the future, and then imagine a way better version of that, because right now it's not that great. I'll, I'll add two things along those lines. Automated EKG reads. I mean, any orthopedic surgeon here probably kind of kind of likes those. Uh, I don't know if I could uh, read an EKG very well without it, but that's been around a long time. I think it was developed in the 80s, uh, and I'm sure it's gotten a lot better. But that, I don't know, I mean, it didn't put cardiologists out of a job. Uh, people use it all the time. I know I certainly do, at least to sort of get an idea, is there something troubling or not, if I happen to ever have an EKG in front of me, which is once every probably seven years. <laughs> um, and uh, so I don't think that the threat is quite as great as, as sometimes it's made out to be. Tom, Peter, thank you very much. It's been great. Thank you. All right, so we're ready to move to part two. Are you ready, guys? Uh, so I would like to invite to the podium Stephen Kurtzer and uh, Jennifer McKenney. So Stephen Kurtzer from Innovate Orthopedics, Texas, Houston, Texas. And Jennifer McKenney from UCLA. Yeah, but when you asked earlier if there's any foreigners here, I thought I was from Texas, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you want to introduce yourself briefly? Sure. Sure. My name is Stefan Kreutzer. I'm an orthopedic surgeon in uh, Houston, Texas. I have a strong passion for robotics as well as outpatient total joints. We, uh, about three years ago, opened a, a, open, a uh, outpatient total joint center. We've now completed over 1,400 same-day discharge total joints, and it's going very well. Another passion is healthcare economics, so kind of the impact of that. And I think one of the questions that we'll probably address today is, you know, how do we manage reducing healthcare costs in an outpatient setting, but still maintain the highest quality possible with technology such as robotics, because the reimbursement is certainly less in an outpatient setting. And so can we afford buying, you know, million dollar robots? And 
how can we uh, create the value proposition for that? Jennifer? Thanks, Fabrizio. I, Jennifer McKinney, uh, also from UCLA, uh, down in Los Angeles. Great to be here in San Francisco. I'm a mechanical engineer by training. I oversee innovation at UCLA Health, as well as sit on our, our value analysis committee and evaluate new technologies as we look at bringing them into the health system. In my other hat, I oversee UCLA Biodesign, which is our early stage healthcare technology innovation program. And once upon a time, I wrote a book chapter on surgical robotics. So I'll, I'll see what I can add to the discussion today. <laughs> Great. That's fantastic. Let's start then. So our first paper, gesture recognition in robotic surgery with multimodal attention. So the objective of this paper was to improve the analysis and uh, fine grain segmentation of surgical motion. Uh, not an easy task. And the goal is to overcome uh, the complexity of articulated instrumentation trajectories and the inner variability due to surgical style and patient anatomy. Stefan. Yeah, it was an interesting paper. Um, it's fascinating how much data they combined here in order to look at motion of instruments and gestures. I usually go to the conference in Houston on, on robotics that has nothing to do with orthopedics. And the outside of orthopedic robotics are much further advanced in analyzing things like that. And I think it's very important because when you look at robotic surgery, it, it lengthens the procedure. And so if we can create efficiencies in fewer hand movements or fewer people movements in the operating room or doing things at the same time, to analyze this with, with large data and AI, I think it's very, very important to move this field forward. Because again, we gotta be efficient in the operating room. It's important to get the patient in and out. And so I thought that was an excellent paper and hopefully we can draw some value from the research that they're doing in, in laparoscopic robotic surgery to open surgery like we do in, in orthopedics. Jennifer, yeah. what's your take? I'll say that you know, we're looking at applications of, of laparoscopic surgery within the orthopedic space for the context of, of this specific paper. When I looked at the queuing in on the kinematic piece of this, as we're looking at kind of the entire operative procedure from pre to post-op and within the actual, you know, we might have those incremental savings during the procedure, but is it going to be enough to move the needle in terms of the, ad the added benefit. And so I look at where is the, the value capture potentially from looking at these multimodal data streams, perhaps it's going to be in the post-op setting. If we look at a revision that was performed with all of this data collected, then we might be able to go back and see what were all of those different data streams? Can we analyze that? Should we have looked at a different implant position should we have looked at another specific variable if we're looking at revision? And I, I think we'll get to this a little bit later in the other paper when we're looking at the um, arthroplasty paper, specifically looking at revision rates. However, there's certain things we can control with robotics and some things we can't control. So can we control patient selection? Can we control certain aspects of soft tissue management with robotics? Potentially not. So how does that play into the pieces that we discussed in this paper? So, and um, what do you think is the impact on the outcome here that something like this? Yeah, so I recall one paper having read on motion analysis in urologic surgery, and they noticed that certain hand movements had a lower incidence of urinary, I think, uh, urinary retention postoperative. And so this kind of analysis, can you say, you know, if you do it this way, you may have more soft tissue damage with a longer recovery phase with a worse outcome. And if you do these kind of motions, then you're more soft tissue sparing or more gentle in the soft tissue, which then can improve clinical outcomes. So correlating this, this kind of analysis and then 
seeing whether it impacts outcome, I think, is, is huge for the future. But that may be answered in, I'm sure, the question yeah. you're going to ask later in 15 years from now when we really are <laughs> uh, down, but very much so. Absolutely true. So what was that really impressed you about or not impressed about this paper? Yeah, I think it's a good question for Rizio because I, I look at these and I think, okay, is this a me too? Is this incremental or is this transformational? And, you know, to me, this is an incremental improvement potentially in the procedural execution of robotic surgery. However, how could we potentially reframe it to be transformational? And when I look at that, it goes back to that surgical data science realm where maybe we can use this and not even to change the train the robot, but maybe to help better train the surgeon when we're looking at VR, AR, other immersive technologies for training and, and some of those finite surgical gestures, maybe we can help provide that. And I don't know if we want to get into the utility of haptics today, but maybe we can provide some kind of closed loop feedback there on the front end, or like I, I mentioned earlier on the revision piece. Or put a shock collar on the residents if they're moving the wrong way and they get zapped. And that would work. All right. Well, I think, I think they only allow that in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly we do. Yeah. Okay, so ready to move to the next one? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, so this one is autonomous robotic laparoscopic surgery for intestinal anastomosis. So the objective here was to enhance the autonomous strategy for laparoscopic and soft tissue surgery and demonstrate that robotic laparoscopic is more about anastomosis in phantom and in vivo intestinal tissue. Peter. Yeah, I mean, a fascinating paper, probably one of my favorite ones, even though I had a hard time understanding some of the technical aspects of it. But um, I currently work with an autonomous robotic company, Think Surgical, where we do knee replacement autonomously. And it's very simple. We put a pin in the femur, we put a pin in the tibia, nothing moves, the robot comes in and, and makes the bony cuts. And even that seems to be like way outside the box when it comes to orthopedics. So to develop a system that has a, a camera and is inside the body cavity with a human or a, this, I think there was a, a pig, right. that actually there's motion because the pig is breathing and being able to sew a moving target and doing it successfully and then testing it postoperatively for patency, I thought was fascinating. So. So when it comes to the three categories, I think this is a, a game changer. You know, the main advantage of autonomy is that you eliminate the variable of the physicians because there are some surgeons that are very talented, there's some surgeons that are less talented, there's some surgeons that are very experienced, there's other surgeons that are less experienced. And an autonomous robot eliminates all of that because it does exactly what you want it to do. And so to be able to, to do that, inside the, the abdominal cavity and, and doing anastomosis, I thought it was fascinating and, and very well done and an enormous amount of work, uh, you know, from a camera system, from tagging things to make sure that it's tracked properly. I thought it was a great paper. I won't ask when the Think Surgical paper is coming is coming out, but I would agree that this was really exciting. You know, second paper that we looked at out of the three that's outside of the field of orthopedics, but how might this have transformational, and for me, Fabrizio, using my my three bucket scale, you know, this falls in that transformational bucket because it is advancing the field. This is, of course, within the abdominal cavity. But as we look at sort of, again, in my, my non-clinical view, but, you know, there's opportunity for more gross motor movements within orthopedic surgical procedures. And so how do we look at this in terms of refining that 
again, whether we're removing the surgeon or actually looking at potentially minimally invasive procedures in the orthopedic space. You know, we're looking at um, ligament repair or other procedures where this kind of fine motor movement would really yield potentially, like we talked about, outcomes that are going to move the needle. Uh, whether or not it's going to take longer or be shorter, I'm not sure. And we'll maybe this is in the 15 years discussion, but how many robots do you need in the room um, is another question that, that we need to talk about. Yeah, they actually have two KUKA robots, which is the medical robot. And do you know how much a, a KUKA robot costs, one of those arms? Say 250K? No, $85,000. So that's the list price. So it, what's interesting is that robots are actually not that expensive. It's because we do them in such small sizes and it's the application of the robot. And so, you know, one of the review articles on the KUKA robot the medical robot and different applications. So there's definitely opportunity to use robots and do it cost effectively. So what are the challenges that you see in uh, translating these more openly into other surgicals? Uh, it's, it's a good question. I think Stefan and I talked a little, little bit just this morning in terms of you have open and closed platforms and then how do those work across the OR or within different fields even? And so when I look at the entire space, how do we think about that enterprise level robot, whether it's gonna be Da Vinci or maybe it's gonna be someone else, but, or if we're just gonna have the Makos and, and all the others that are competing within the same field or who's gonna compete across the field, I think would be a really interesting question. Yeah, and a good question about open platform. And it, I almost envision is that, you know, they've proven one surgical procedure and that's an anastomosis. And they've created a system that can do that and it's mostly, you know, things off the shelf like a KUKA robot. Wouldn't it be great in 15 years where we have a system like this, and then just like the iPhone app store, different companies can develop different processes and different surgical challenges, plug it into this robot system, validate it, and then you have another application. Then if you have one robot and you can do 15 surgeries with it, then the value proposition is totally different. With Mako, we started with one robot, one operation that's done rarely. That's not a good value proposition. Now Mako has a uni, a total, it has a, a HIPAA platform. So it has more applicability, but if we can create systems and then have other companies, and that's why it open platform, in my opinion, is so important other companies plug into that system where we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time as a defensive play as all the device companies do now. I think that's where the future goes. Let's switch to the third paper. Robotic assisted surgery in medial compartmental knee arthroplasty. Does it improve the precision of the surgery and its clinical outcome? This is a systematic review, but we thought it was conveyed a good message and a good opportunity for a discussion and it was a good review. So, Peter. Yeah, so that's finally a paper I understood. <laughs> the other two I was like, <laughs> um, and it's, a, it's a great review article and it, it brings up some really good points. Um, when you develop a robotic solution, you have to show accuracy and accuracy is really defined by dimensional accuracy and positional accuracy. And this was a systematic review looking at, at accuracy. 
precision is, you know, do you, can you reproducibly put the implant in the, in the same position? So they looked at precision there as well. And then they looked at clinical outcome. And what was amazing about the, it really did not make a strong argument for robotics. And the papers that they, you know, they looked at a lot of papers and there were very few randomized controlled trials. And so I think if the robotic field in orthopedics wants to survive, they really need to start looking at much more randomized controlled trials. The second thing is you also got to look at, you know, you can be highly accurately incorrect. And while in uni, I think we pretty much know where to put the implants, in total knees, we really don't. We still argue, is it kinematic alignment? Is it mechanical alignment? Is it three degrees external rotation? What's a safe varus cut on the tibia? And we really need to create this feedback loop as to define where do you need to put the implant back to clinical outcome so that we can then say, okay, yes, we have these fancy tools that are very accurate, but we need to be correct. And so I, I think that that paper really brings up a good, good challenge of robotics that we as physicians and you as device companies need to address and, and come up with a solution so that the committees that you sit on or that you host and somebody else wants to, you know, some surgeon wants a $1.5 million robot, you know, you got to show value. Yeah, I, I would I would just preface by saying I 100% I agree that this is probably one of the most comprehensive reviews out there in terms of sometimes I, I'm a little ambivalent about these retrospective reviews, but this is really everything that's out there. And I think it's a good starting point for the field in terms of saying, what do we need to do to show the utility and show the value? When you looked at survivorship specifically within the context of this paper, there was one specific subset within the cohort of about 12 studies that they looked at. I can't see that. I know. That's, that's okay. I, I did my homework. <laughs> One of the specific cohorts that was a sample size, about 57 patients, when they looked at the difference in revision between robotic assisted and, and surgeon performed procedures, they saw that within the robotic assisted group, there were no revisions associated with alignment issues. However, within the physician, we don't call it physician assisted, Correct. but Conventional. Conventional, yeah, conventional uh, surgical surgery, there was actually 86% of the re revisions were associated with alignment. And so again, it goes back to what can we control with robots? What can't we control? And positioning is one of the things we can control that Stefan exactly. talked about. Cementing technique, we cannot. So, you know, early failure is poor cementing technique, most likely, and not alignment. You know, alignment has an impact maybe later on as far as wear and, and possibly, you know, offloading and so forth. And so it's, it's, you know, I thought it was an excellent paper as well. What about the implant tolerance? Correct. And it's a good question. You know, it's, we have crossing poly, we have vitamin E poly. You know, can we put these things in upside down and they still work? Maybe not, but there's <laughs> certainly the tolerances are much higher. But I think, it, again, we, you know, I always talk to people, my hips run marathons, my knees don't. So there's a lot of improvement on knee replacement. And I think robotic is the solution for that. But we've got to prove the clinical efficacy and outcome. All right. So here we are. Let's think what's going to happen in the next 15 years. <laughs> I love that question. And I, I was glad you asked it earlier because I could put a little bit of thought into what I think will happen in 15 years. And in a perfect world where I see myself with robotics, I think there is, number one, we have to define the target. I think we need to prove that robots are accurate, and then we can change the implant design. You know, currently all the implants that are used on the market are 10 years or older. 
uh, of the four top companies. And the reason why we don't change the implant is because it's very costly. And so can we develop a system where you can get a preoperative CAT scan in the clinic? You can optimize the surgical plan for that particular patient that is based on their activity level, their alignment, and their needs. You can then 3D print an implant in your back office, sterilize it, and then use a robot to implant it. And then two weeks later, they can run marathons. That's what I envision will happen. And I hope we get there. I'm going to come see you in like 60 years. <laughs> the marathon. Uh, I think there's a few different pieces of this to, to take apart, but I, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head, the idea of like the surgical app store, right? And so how do we get there? How do we get to kind of the broader field of medicine and looking at robots that have utility across clinical service lines? But then before we get there, we have to think about the healthcare economics piece because there's there's different modalities that companies use to sell into the health system. Okay, the robot's going to come for free. It's going to be a leasing model. It's going to be a, a big capex up front. And I think that's going to continue to change and, and evolve as I, I see colleagues from ortho coming, ortho spine coming. It's like, you we won't say the name, but so-and-so is giving us the robot for free. Okay, well, what does that mean? And you know, is that does that mean there's a healthcare economics component here or not? But going back to what you said, Stefan, I think was really interesting in terms of, you know, 3D printing in the back office. And there's companies taking off different pieces of that. I think about Carl's Med, they're based down in Southern California, right? They're 3D printing the spine implant, they're doing the preoperative planning, they're sending that personalized implant to the surgeon. And then pushing that a little bit further, and then this goes back to a little bit of that real-world evidence piece, then maybe we can link back to that robotic surgical environment in terms of what Canary Medical is doing with the tibial implant sensor with the, the Zimmer knee, the Persona mm -hmm. IQ, yep. right? And so when I look at that field of data and we're starting to be able to close the loop from the personalized implant to the real-world evidence that's going to be collected after the implant, Again, does that data that we talked about that was incremental earlier all of a sudden become transformational because I'm getting those early real world evidence gate, whatever it is, following the surgical procedure? Yeah, there's nothing free, right? You, we all get those emails, you know, sign up with T-Mobile, get a free iPhone, and then you go there and it's really not free. It's just you, you pay over uh, on a monthly basis, right? But, it, you know, we currently spend 18% of GDP on healthcare, and it's predicted to be 20% of GDP in the next 10 years. And so it's a, it's a cost uh, acceleration that is unsustainable for the U.S. healthcare system. So first of all, nothing is for free. And second of all, you got to look at the value proposition, and it has to be a zero-sum game. So if you bring in a robot, something else has got to give. We cannot increase the cost of the procedure, especially with the shift into the ASC, because you get paid less in the ASC. And so, you know, can we use 3D planning and robotics in order to improve the current process, delivery process of implants? Like right now, when I do a total knee, they bring three instrument sets and they bring a full set of inventory for every case that I do. That's not an efficient management of resources. With 3D planning and robotics, you can eliminate 80% of the instruments and you can eliminate 90% of the inventory. That's a cost saving to the device company. So can we create better delivery models with robotic solutions that not only creates a zero-sum game from a cost standpoint, but then also improves clinical outcome? And that's really where the future needs to go in robotics. Thank you. This was really good. Please, round of applause. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. All right, so you were intrigued, uh, most of you at least, so that's great. There you go. We have a winner, robotic surgery precision.
Thank you very much. This has been wonderful. I'll see you tomorrow. We hope you enjoyed this presentation and will consider joining us live in San Francisco for DOCSF 2023, when we will explore how digital technologies will enhance, support, and enable the expansion of the outpatient surgery arena. Register now to join our mailing list at docsf.health, docsf.health, and be the first to access our limited tickets. DOCSF, join the revolution.